Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the pilot episode of EU Confidential, Politico's new European politics podcast. I'm Ryan Heath, the author of the Brussels Playbook column and your host. The idea here is a weekly conversation taking you behind the scenes of how Europe is run, with the people who run it, analyze it, and obsess over it. Boring is out, spicy is in. So get your coffee, your beer, your gin, or whatever else gets you going and settle in for some fun. In addition to a featured guest each week, I'll guide you through the European political maze with the help of Politico's team of 60 journalists in Europe and a Brussels Brains Trust consisting of the wonderful Lena Aberus and Alva Finn. You'll hear more from them soon. The topic on most people's lips this week is of course the election in the United Kingdom and the question of whether Theresa May is a dead woman walking in Downing Street. We'll go deeper into the London circus in our next episode as the dust settles, likewise with the French parliamentary elections. In the meantime, Brussels keeps humming along. EU figures no longer freak out about Brexit. In fact, they put Brexit in a corner. That's why our star guest this week is Pierre Moscovici, the EU's finance commissioner, who joins us to talk about how to fight populism and finish the construction of the Eurozone. But before we go to Moscovici, let's put his views in a wider context. To help me do that is Bjarke Smith-Meyer from Politico's financial services reporting team. Thanks for joining us, Bjarke. Hi, Ryan. So help us set the scene here. In my mind, the Eurozone is a half-built house. And in recent years, the owners have basically been too busy acting as a fire brigade to get down to finishing the building plans for the rest of the house. But if you're going to do that, the big shareholders in the house, Germany and France, have to be on board and willing to compromise. Isn't that right? Yeah, so I think you're, you're right in saying that the firefighters have been running around and trying to put out all the fires and we still have a big fire in Greece. So, you know, the story isn't really over there, but we have come to a point where we can look forward over the next eight years and figure out where we want the Eurozone to go. And for the longest time, it has been Germany that's been dictating basically the whole show for the longest time. Whether that's a criticism of Hollande uh, or not, I don't know. But it has been the Germany show. But now that Macron has come onto the scene and become the sort of poster child of Europe, it seems like Germany could end up getting pushed off its perch. And I don't think that's a position they'll give up lightly. Absolutely. And so Moscovici is obviously French. So you've got two strong French people who are going to be in there now fighting the French corner. And if you look at the Commission's role, I mean, they're basically there to try and nudge France and Germany together, basically. And they've just put out a new paper, the Commission, about all the different options there. What's your take on the paper? 
So the paper for me is an ambitious roadmap or an attempt to try and stir some sort of debate. Now, I'm not sure that all these ideas will be taken on by the whole of Europe or the Eurozone in particular, but there are aspects there of promoting the accountability of secretive uh, Eurofinance uh, groups like the Eurogroup, for instance, or creating official figureheads that then have to be held accountable and uh, explain their reasonings in front of the European Parliament. And then there's also other ideas of how to sort of promote stability within the Eurozone by like creating up a, a rainy day fund or something that could help stop future crises from happening in their tracks, like nip it in the bud. And, you know, those are all great ideas. The only question is whether Germany are all up for the idea of sharing risk sharing financial risk uh, before reducing all of the risks that are around, which is the big debate. It sounds like it's almost a new thing, but the same old story at once, where all of those things just sound like normal national governing strategies and tools. But when you think about it at the EU level, because this has just never existed at the cross-border level before, it becomes this controversial debate and people you know, take a very long time to get their act together. But picking up on one of your points, I'm thinking about the Eurogroup there, which is um, that set of ministers, they meet behind closed doors to decide on things like the Greek bailout. And I'm thinking back to the story we wrote a couple of weeks ago together on that. Uh, and in the interview coming up next, Moscovici comes down very heavily on the side of more openness for this quite secretive group. And I'm wondering, uh, will his views win in the coming years, in your view? Yes and no. Moscovici comes up with this idea that you could set up some sort of official link between the Commission and the Eurogroup by setting up what would we what we could call a Eurozone finance minister who would also be the official pinpoint person of the Eurogroup as well. Now, it's not a bad idea and I know that a lot of MEPs would be behind would be behind this sort of uh, concept, but the reality is it's the council and it's the EU governments that really hold all the power even in this town. And I have heard from many sources that there is a level of reluctance to basically giving up this informality uh, that the Eurogroup holds uh, and basically giving up more of its power to the Commission. It sort of kills the idea of being able to have a frank chat with a friend rather than having cameras all around you and minutes being taken all the time. And so I'm not totally sure that it can be as formal and as accountable as the Commission hopes it can, but, you know, there's nothing wrong in stirring a debate. Now let's think about Moscovici's ambitions uh, directly. He tells us in the interview that he's been preparing all his life for a bigger role. Um, so I was wondering, when you, when you listened to the interview, what was your reaction there? Because you listen to him every day, you follow everything that he says or tweets or writes. You know, what, what's your take on this man who doesn't sound like he's ready to retire? So Moscovici is a political animal, so I'm sure that he's thinking three or four steps ahead. I mean, he does say that he's got plenty of work to do until the end of the administration in November 2019, but I'm sure he is thinking further down the road. He always makes reference to the fact that his successor would then be this potential finance minister who would also be the head of the Eurogroup and the like. And then he always sort of distances, distances himself from that position at the same time, despite saying that this is something that he has spent his whole life preparing for, which is a funny thing to mention. It makes me wonder whether he imagines that he could somehow come back in the future and then play this senior role, but is very humble about it at this particular moment. So I don't think we've seen the end of Moscovici, or at least an attempt to, for him to come back onto the scene once the commission ends. 
Great. Well, thanks for joining us, Bianca. Now let's hear from the man himself, Pierre Moscovici, the European Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, Taxation and Customs. I joined him at the EU's offices on the banks of the River Seine in Paris, and he spoke to us for nearly half an hour about all of his views on how to fight populism, how to finish the construction of the Eurozone, and a lot more. Commissioner Moscovici, you are about to head to the Elysee Palace for a meeting with President Macron. Uh, Tell us, what's on your mind as you head into that meeting? The President of the Republic uh, always has regular meetings with the uh, French Commissioner, that was the case before, between me and François Hollande, but also between François Hollande and Michel Barnier, and I hope that this tradition will go on, because the, the Commissioner is, of course, independent, but I think we have both messages to address to each other, and it's good. Uh, for me to know where the French uh, policy is going. I think it's also useful for the president to to listen to the uh, commission's uh, uh, expectations about France. And he needs you and the socialists to a large extent, doesn't he? Because if we agree that the tectonic plates are shifting in European politics at the moment, it's going to require the left to come on board with the sort of reforms that might allow that further European integration or that Franco-German motor to really kick into a top gear? Well, I would say, let's not talk at this stage about the socialist or the left. Uh, We need to have progressist ideas in Europe. Um, I'm a dedicated European, I'm a social democrat, and I believe that we need structural reforms in Europe. But structural reforms doesn't mean pain. It doesn't mean that it had to hurt doesn't mean that somebody should be punished. We've made reforms that were absolutely necessary to strengthen uh, our economies. Uh, Pension reforms, labour market reforms. Uh, Maybe we still need some labour market reforms uh, or professional training reforms uh, or uh, tax reforms. But we also need reforms that now enhance our capacity to develop human capital. And that's about education, that's about innovation, that's about research, that's about development, and that's about the keyword in my view, is investment. We need more investment in Europe. If I look at the pre-crisis level, I see that we invested uh, 10% more before the crisis in Europe than we do now. How can we be in uh, the first league in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years from now if we invest less than before and less than our competitors? Is that socialist? Is that social democrat? No, uh, it's progressist. And I think that uh, for that, we need to have a commission which is strong capacity to propose. We need to have uh, Germany with a bit more openness maybe than today, and France with uh, more credibility than one usually believes, because there are some prejugés or images. Uh, France would be a lazy country, Germany would be a very serious one, Uh, one would be uh, uh, too uh, closed and the other too open. These prejudices are false, but obviously we need maybe a bit more credibility here in Paris, uh, and a bit more openness there in Berlin. So let's bring the commission in. It's In a sense, you could be a bit of a bridge or a bit of the glue that binds those Franco-German elements of the engine together. Is that what you're saying? Well, if I look at the past, uh, what are the ingredients of a successful Europe? We need to have a dedicated uh, French president uh, uh, for Europe. We need to have a dedicated pro-European as Chancellor of Germany. We need to have a, uh, the Commission as a strong proponent. I think the model would be uh, uh, Kohl, Mitterrand, 
the law. We're not there. But, well, we also need to have uh, the left and the right pushing together uh, for uh, seriousness, as far as fiscal policies are concerned, but also ambition uh, for uh, reforms and for integration. We need to have a deeper integration of the Eurozone today. We are in, in a post, pre-post-Brexit world, if I could say. We're in the Trump world, uh, and we see that uh, our reaction must be at the same time to strengthen our EU at 27, because we need unity for single market, for security, for defense. But at the same time, we need to have a, a stronger Eurozone at 19. And I see no contradiction between both. That's why, uh, as far as the Euro is concerned, we also need uh, more integration there. And that's what the Commission is advocating for. There's no contradiction, but it does really require that Franco-German motor, doesn't it? It's not going to come from the fringes, that deeper integration. It's clear. Uh, without a, a strong agreement between France and Germany, nothing happens. It doesn't mean that uh, this is sufficient uh, for uh, every resistance to be lifted, but it is a necessary precondition. And for that, there needs to be a, a kind of trade-off uh, you need to have a German uh, capacity to accept that uh, fiscal policies are serious. You need to have French ideas asking the Germans to do more uh, for investment or to accept more as far as integration is concerned. And, and I think our reflection paper is again a synthesis between those positions because we advocate uh, for a, a banking union, which is completed. We advocate for a fiscal union, which is completed. And we want that triangle, uh, which is a finance minister for the Eurozone, who would be at the same time the commissioner, my successor, should be mm -hmm. this minister. We need to have a budget, because we need to invest precisely, invest in Germany, but also invest everywhere in Europe where there is a need. And we need to have more democracy, not more technocracy. And that's what, uh, why... Uh, that's what a European Parliament of the Eurozone is about, mm -hmm. a Parliament of the Eurozone. I detected a, a glint of interest and passion in your eye when you uh, were answering that question. Could you be a candidate to be that uh, Eurozone finance minister? I think that it, it requires, obviously, some, some political changes, which are very important. I would be honoured, pleased, uh, etc., to be in that function. I, I've been preparing for that. I wouldn't say for a lifetime, but I was finance minister before now, I'm commissioner. But I'm well aware that it's not for tomorrow. I would say that's for my successor. I don't know who will be my successor, but I'm not a candidate to succeed myself. I've got too many work to do uh, until uh, then, until November 2019. No, but you know, uh, when you're a politician uh, and when you have some ambition for, for what you're doing, uh, there is the legacy issue. I would really like the next commissioner to be at the same time uh, the, uh, the the, the uh, chair of the Eurogroup uh, to be accountable uh, in front of the European Parliament. That means in front of the people. You know, I, I think that today I spent maybe, I don't know, something like 80 Eurogroups about Greece, uh, plus restricted meetings, plus bilateral meetings, plus etc., etc. And I'm very frustrated there because we are deciding behind closed doors Mm -hmm. The fate of 11 million people, and sometimes there were some minutes leaked recently. You might regret leaks. We always regret leaks. But they so, served a purpose, didn't they? Yes, because they showed that we worked on assumptions, on figures that were somehow contradictory, and 
that some of the partners were really tough towards Greece, but nobody was lenient, but some would consider that it's time to, 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 to tell the Greek people, you've made your part of the job, you have taken your own responsibilities, now we need to take ours. But uh, nobody knows really what happens there. Um, uh, you do. Tell us a bit, or tell us tell us what it's like in the room. What's the the atmosphere, the mood, the rhythm, and and what would you change about it? Uh, the, the atmosphere. It's it, the, the, the Eurogroup is a very uh, bright, positive, useful club, uh, and it takes decision. I think that uh, the, the action of Europe in those uh, late years. Uh, has really led to the fact that we avoided Brexit, that Greece is inside the Eurozone, that there were reforms in Greece, that there is a program which is positive. But at the same time, we did not create the conditions for a, a, a policy for growth and jobs, not enough in Greece. And it's time to do that. And we didn't solve the debt issue. And that's what we have to do now. Uh, I think that we, if there would have been more democratic accountability, more openness, more transparency, uh, more intervention of uh, uh, parliament, uh, medias, civil society, well, things might have been more fluid because, of course, an intergovernmental body, and this is one, is always the confrontation of national interest or institutional positions. And that's what we are trying to to, to We are trying to... to, to, to to put this all together, and we do, and we do that successfully. Uh, I've been uh, in that uh, for five years now, first as finance minister and then as commissioner. Uh, I had two presidents, both of them very bright, uh, leading that with good face, Jean-Claude Juncker, and now Jeroen Dijsselbloem, but there are limits to the exercise. And when I see that some uh, tend to propose that we have more automatic mechanisms of decisions, mm -hmm. that we should, for example, take the Commission out of the uh, budget or fiscal surveillance, I think that is not wise. Because well, there wouldn't be any surveillance if the Commission wasn't there pushing, would there? Uh, sometimes uh, we are accused, and especially myself, because I'm a social democrat, of being too political. Sometimes, and that's for the public, we are accused of being too technocratic. As a matter of fact, we are political. We are not politicized. We are uh, acting by the rules but we are also introducing some flexibility, some elements of reasoning, some intelligence in the rules. And that is absolutely necessary. Without the Commission in that uh, piloting function, you just would have rules without flexibility, without intelligence, automatism, uh, and no democracy. And, and, and the Commission at least is responsible in front of the Parliament. Uh, I was, as the rest of the Commissioners, uh, elected by the European Parliament. Uh, I have full respect for for Regling, for the uh, ESM, but I don't think that the ESM can be a European Monetary Fund with budget surveillance function without democratic control. I think we need more democracy. We don't need more technocracy. We need less technocracy, and we need more transparency. And that's, I think, things that we need to reflect on now. Why? Because uh, people have. Uh, of course, the, the mood has changed in Europe. It's more positive. Uh, one year ago, everybody feared that populism would win in Austria, in Netherlands, in France, and they were defeated everywhere. But populism has lost battles. It has not lost the war. And if Europe appears as first too technocratic, and second, that's the most important, as not delivering the results, economic, social results that people expect, then populism can come back. 
And that's why uh, the, when we speak about uh, the, the, the triangle, budget, parliament, uh, ministry, people could say, well, that's only institutions. No, that's about people. It's a face. You really, someone would be able to really engage with a face of the EU in all of this. The bailout hasn't had a face to a large extent. You've had these nasty images, and I, I don't mean to label you with the, the nasty image, but you have this impression of the troika uh, that is not a, a set of humans, but some kind of machine that descends on Greece and imposes pain on people. And the systems that you're floating in this paper, at the very least, would put some kind of face to that system. Yes, we need face, and we need also incarnation, but there is a purpose there. Uh, the purpose is that uh, this revamped, renewed Eurozone would have an objective, uh, which would be to reduce divergences, economic and social divergences, inside Europe. Because if in 10 years from now you've got the North more and more prosperous uh, and the South feeling uh, uh, left apart, uh, then people in the North would say, why should we pay for those guys who are not doing their own work? And in the South, why should we have always austerity without having the benefits of uh, the Euro? Uh, people today are pro-Euro, maybe more than ever. Why? Because they have stability uh, and because they have security. But in the long run, they expect also the euro to be a creation of prosperity. And those institutions that we are designing, and that also I think uh, the French and the Germans will have to design through their own uh, working groups, through their own political exchanges, those institutions, uh, they are made for that. Uh, they are made to, to develop an investment capacity for Europe. And this investment capacity is dedicated to growth. And this growth has to be uh, fairly distributed. And there's an east-west divide as well that I pick up. When we had a convergence track that was being followed prior to 2008, that was a way that the newer member states of the EU were bound into the system. And other elements that they might not have been so happy about in the process, that was okay because they were catching up economically to the Western member states. And if we don't find a way in Europe to restart that convergence, I imagine there will be more problems, more divisions between East and West as well as between North and South. Yes, but that's as well economic convergence, but also political convergence, and would even say cultural convergence. I myself, my, my father was born in Romania, and my mother was Polish from origin. When I was a young uh, European Affairs Minister in the 90s, I worked a lot for enlargement. I, I think that enlargement is a huge success, that it's an historical achievement. But I can see now that there is something that we have not done at that time, uh, which was to prepare the minds, which was to prepare a common narrative, uh, to, to have a common view of what Europe is about. And finally, that's quite logical, because we, uh, in the old Europe, we made Europe because we wanted to renounce to some part of sovereignty uh, because the, the shock of nationalism led us to war. And I think that in the East, it was the reverse. They wanted to recover their sovereignty because they have been uh, under the umbrella uh, and more than that, uh, under the shock of totalitarianism. And so the view of Europe is not quite the same. Uh, for them, it's, uh, I would say, market and convergence only sometimes. And for us, it's more about integration. And I think that we need uh, to, to, to work also on that cultural uh, dimension. And how? By creating tools that are attractive to everybody. Mm. If I come back, for example, to, to the Eurozone, let's be logical. After the Brexit, uh, potentially, 
the euro is a currency of the old union. And, and, and 85% of the post-Brexit EU, uh, as far as GDP is concerned, will be eurozone. So we need to build the conditions not to impose euro to Poland, to Hungary, to Bulgaria, but to, to, to have them feeling that euro is attractive enough for them so that they can join in, in the future. And that's about euro, but the same work has to be done about defense, about the internal market. But um, I'm very critical, of course, of uh, governments in Poland and Hungary, but I know that there are also civil societies, that there are people who are pro-European. We need to show them, by example, that European Europe is attractive to them. And do we need to extend that idea of that safety net, that protection via the EU to things like uh, Europe-wide unemployment insurance, for example, so that people know they have a minimum set of conditions and protections wherever they are in Europe. Would you, would you go that far or consider those options to address populism? I couldn't say uh, I refused them because I think I was maybe the first uh, in Europe. It was when I was finance minister. The, the Treasury of France delivered a paper in 2013 proposing this unemployment uh, insurance uh, and that could be one of the ways, uh, not exclusive from the others, uh, in which the uh, uh, Eurozone budget could be designed. Which maybe brings us back to the French socialists, if we can have one question there. Uh, your party's been in a really difficult situation domestically after having that real high in 2012, where you ran everything and you were the finance minister. Um, will you be encouraging them to play a constructive role in these discussions that the president will have to have in the coming months? I think the troubles of the Socialist Party are, are not over. Uh, we, would, we will need to analyse what happened because what an extraordinary story to start with all the powers in 2012 and five years after being reduced to, I don't know, we'll see a few dozens, uh, optimistically, optimistically uh, uh, MPs, that's, that's odd. And, and, and to see that so many people escaped from uh, our ranks, uh, moved away. Uh, and this is not only about the French socialists, the situation of crisis of the European socialists everywhere. We need to ask ourselves, after the analysis of what happened, what is the purpose, the role? Do we need socialists for tomorrow? My answer would be yes. Uh, why? Because I think that they are the only ones who can, at the same time, tackle uh, inequalities uh, and be dedicated pro-European. And that's why, certainly, uh, they must uh, be uh, very active in the European debate. I would even tend to think that the renewal of uh, socialism will start with Europe. The question can be, must be, how can we deliver uh, fairness? How can we reduce inequalities uh, by creating a Europe uh, which is more active on the social, economic field, but also creating a sense of protection and security. That's uh, the job of those who uh, will prepare the uh, European elections for 2019. But we need to, to think about that from now. On EU Confidential, we like to learn a little bit about the person that we're talking to, not just their political passions as well. Um, tell us, if you weren't in politics, what job would you like to have? Uh, I think I would like to be a, a writer or maybe a journalist. Uh, sometimes journalists are writers too uh, for, because I've, I've got the, the, the passion for literature, for, for cinema. Uh, I always have a book or a few books in my 
wallet. Uh, yeah, I, that reminds me. You take a lot of train journeys. If I have heard correctly, you're commuting back and forth several times a week between Paris and Brussels. Is, is that when you get the reading done? Uh, that's a disadvantage because I've got to work to, to wake up very early uh, and, and second to, 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 to go to bed very late. But I'm, I'm married. I married late. I was in my 58th year with a woman who... You're not 59. Yeah, I'm, I'm, 50, I'm 59. Okay. I'm married two, two years. I stand shocked, listeners. I did not expect... Uh, I'm going to be 16 <laughs> in September. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, with a woman who is a bit younger than I am, I mean 22 years or younger, and she, she lives in Paris, and I think that's... Uh, yes, I try to, 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 to be with her as much as possible... Uh, but always doing my, my work. Uh, but but then it's true that if, when you're in the Thales for one hour and 20 minutes, you've got time to read. And I, I must confess that some try to read the dossiers. I do, but I read mostly uh, books. And that's a, that's a fantastic experience because I think I've never read so much than since I'm a commissioner. And fiction, or we're talking political biographies and other serious stuff? I love history, and I love historical biographies, uh, but I, I mostly read fiction. Uh, I've, I've just read the, the, the last book of Richard Harris, uh, Conclave, and that's all. That, that's politics, uh, but that's a very special kind of politics. Indeed. Pierre Moscovici, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. It's time now for one of my favourite parts of the week, EU WTF. EU WTF is our chance to pick over the latest jaw-dropping moment in European politics. Joining me for the fun are Alva Finn and Lena Aberus. Hi, Alva. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Good morning. I want to make sure our listeners get to know both of you before we get started. So think of this as like speed dating with the audience, with me as a kind of mean fairy godmother running things. So I'm going to throw out a thought about each of you, and you let me know if it's fair, libelous, or somewhere in between. Alva... I once described you as the person I'd send in if it turned out the European Commission's College of Commissioners had their food or drink spiked. So in this scenario, I'm imagining the 28 commissioners high as kites and you coming them all down and making sure stuff happens. You're the cool crisis manager. Does that about sum you up? I think that's actually very flattering, so I'll take that. Good. Lena, you used to be a member of a royal household, and you're pretty much my favourite boss lady in Brussels. You run your own consultancy, Eurafix, and it's got the meanest drinks cabinet this side of Jean-Claude Juncker's office. Is that you in a nutshell? <laughs> Certainly, except that we're just enhancing the, um, the little cabinet we have in the office. So there's one cabinet, two cabinets, or a bigger cabinet? Well, let's discover. Good. That's how we like to roll here at EU Confidential. So let's get down to business. This week's EU WTF moment is a ruling from the EU's general court that's basically the second highest court in the EU, one step below the European Court of Justice. And get this, the court just issued a €650,000 fine against itself. That means the court now has to pay a company called Guardian Industries €650,000 because it took four and a half years to decide on the company's appeal. They were appealing against a €106 million Euro fine that the European Commission had levied against it for price fixing. The court even admitted that it spent 26 months doing absolutely nothing about the case. Now, I don't know about you two, but I've been to Luxembourg, and there is virtually nothing <laughs> to do there. There is exactly zero chance that you could find your diary full up down in Luxembourg. 
there's one nightclub, and I'm using that term loosely, you literally have to bribe companies to move there with tax dodgers. And I was once involved trying to recruit somebody to move to Luxembourg. And let me tell you, we basically had to bribe them to, to get the position filled. And to be fair, I've got a friend who says there's good running trails down there, but I am not buying this idea that you can just have 26 months where there's nothing to do down in Luxembourg. Alva, what do you think? Yeah, I think maybe it's just us at work. I think they do now... I'm not an expert in in the workings of the court, but I think I've heard that they do give out these these um, these payments. Um, and I think in this case, it was a very, very big uh, penalty, right? That fine. Uh, so I hope that it just encourages them to, to move a little bit quicker. Uh, I know what you're saying is all after hour stuff, but as we know, a lot of people who work in, <laughs> in and around the EU institutions like to leave work at half, half five. Um, so maybe it is the case that they just don't have the chance during the day, uh, and that they need more judges. But um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a good thing, and I think it can can encourage them to move quicker. Sounds a little bit like they're working to the French thirty five hour week as well. There, mm-hmm. uh, Lena, what's your reaction? It's a precedent. I think it's very good uh, in the right direction. Uh, personally, just recently, uh, we were talking to our um, um, agency's lawyer and. Um, he just explained to me that he has uh, he's on the waiting list for some uh, pleading uh, um, and some cases until 2022. And that's in a Belgian court. This is in a Belgian court. So if this happens on the European uh, level and in, in, and they're really uh, costing an arm and a leg of such an amount of money, I think um, they're, the other countries, Belgium, Spain, Italy, wherever, I mean, uh, it, it they should like really think, take a step back and enhance their, their procedures. Uh, as Alva said, possibly they have to hire more judges and um, there are plenty of unemployed uh, lawyers all around Europe. So mm-hmm. this is something to really think of and um, to, to encourage other uh, companies not to be silent. Maybe this is a case of a company just getting brought down to the same level that individuals mm-hmm. are being treated at. So maybe it's a kind of a, a weird uh, race to the bottom in terms of equal treatment. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people have to wait a long time. But I think if, if there's a, you're, you're waiting on a, a payout or to know about a payout on $105 million, that affects your business. Um, so in some ways it can be, yeah... Um, very difficult. So I'm glad that, that, that they have taken this step and I'm sure that it will it will move things along quicker because if you know that there might be a penalty in it for the EU, which makes it look terrible, like you're paying out €625,000 uh, for no reason, yeah, I think it, it will encourage them to move quicker. That's another angle. That's also taxpayers' money that's mm-hmm. being handed out. But I think if I'm reading the room correctly, that's uh, overall thumbs up to the court for having the guts to make that ruling. Excellent. So now we come to Dear Politico, the advice session of EU Confidential. We take listener problems, uh, real-life problems that are out there in the European uh, bubble, the Brussels bubble, and we try and give solutions or at least suggestions of how people can deal with their their everyday problems. So first up, we've got a problem uh, from Angelica. Now, Angelica is an assistant to a member of the European Parliament, and this is a little bit of a tricky one to deal with uh, because Angelica has been experiencing uh, what you might call some harassment or problem behaviour. 
She's not the only one that's been experiencing that in her office. And she's also written to say that she thinks just about everybody in the European Parliament has experienced that sort of behaviour. And so the sort of behaviours that we've had described to us include people, MEPs, throwing chairs, people harassing or groping assistants in the lift, a general abuse of hierarchy, and some more specific ones that uh, Angelica's asked us not to describe because uh, she would be worried about being identified. And then the second layer of this problem is that she's tried to speak to other people in the office who have experienced these uh, behaviours, and they are unwilling to, to certainly go on the record to Politico or to, to even um, generally air the complaints because they're worried about backlash and they somehow think that maybe they've internalised this a little bit and they've said that it would be the wrong thing to do to talk about their bosses in that way. So Angelica's in a problem. She doesn't know how to move forward with that complaint um, and uh, she'd like our advice on whether she should keep mobilising these complaints and, and what would be the way to really change the behaviour of these MEPs. Uh, Alva, what's your suggestion? Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, Angelica, but I also think, unfortunately, you're not alone. I've heard a lot of people in the parliament, particularly assistants, uh, are treated quite badly. Now, I do think this is a reflection on where, where they're working. We know that a lot of politicians have very big egos uh, and they think that people just kind of have to run along after them. Um, however, you know, if it's really worrying behaviour, um, disrespectful behaviour, etc., I do think people need to speak out. Um, the other layer of that problem is that uh, uh, people have asked you not to um, kind of identify them uh, in, in the allegations. And I do think you need to be sensitive to that. Um, people's careers can be, can be ruined by that. Uh, but I think, on the other hand, it could be good for your reputation, that you're standing up to, to, to potentially, uh, yeah, disrespectful, sexist, harmful behaviour, and it could help change that climate in, in, the, in the parliament. So I would say that, yes, you should speak out if you feel so strongly about it. Um, also, make sure that you, you, you have ident- you've taken down all the notes and you have uh, all the dates that these things happened, etc. Um, but also encourage those people to come out as well, because your case will be so much stronger with them. That's very good advice, keeping the notes and being specific. And if you can, doing it in group format rather than going out on a limb as one person. Uh, Lena, there's also the case that um, some of this behaviour appears to be illegal, not just disrespectful. Uh, What's your take on it? What would would you do and, and, and what would you advise Angelica to do? First of all, Angelica, well done that you have spoken up and you have uh, written to Ryan. Uh, This is the first step on the, the right path. The second, I definitely believe that she should continue uh, researching, compiling more information, um, getting her file in order, and not to be afraid. It takes one person to step up, and one person, as Alva said, can change this climate, that it has become... um, Every day, and especially with, with the kind of work I do, I speak a lot to people in the parliament, and especially to assistants, and some stories are like, I mean, you think, am I really living in Brussels? Am I really living in Europe? What's, what are some examples you've heard? Uh, all of us, we've been to Strasbourg uh, after uh, one of the plenaries, and 
we all been invi- invited either to parties or to uh, to uh, dinners, and you can see their behavior. It's it's uh, it's horrible. So well done, Angelica. Uh, get your your file together and speak up and stand up. And if any time you need a job, we're all there for you. There we go. You can't get a better offer of assistance than that. Well, thank you, Angelica. We hope that was of some assistance to you. If anyone else out there has a problem that they would like addressed, send an email to playbook at politico.eu. That's playbook at politico.eu. Thanks for joining us for this pilot episode of EU Confidential. You can subscribe for these weekly episodes by looking for EU Confidential on iTunes or SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. We're keen to get the word out and hear from you about what you'd like to hear more of. Send your feedback to playbook at politico.eu. Until next week, I'm Ryan Heath, and you've been listening to EU Confidential. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.